you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. It's our text for today. Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Father, we pray that you would be with us as you promised today, that you would be together with us here as we gather together your people, your church, and we ask that you would open our ears to hear your word and open our hearts that we would receive it, that we would be transformed, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The human story is a story of alienation. It's a story of fractured relationship a fractured relationship between people and God. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve in paradise in the garden. God is walking in the garden. God is with them. God is present. And they sin. They rebel. And God says, get out. Relationship fractured. And it's been that way ever since for humanity. In the last week, I saw again the movie Guardians of the Guardians of the Galaxy number two, and uh, in it they have a character. Um, he's a godlike character. His name is Ego, and um, Ego says essentially for his own glory and for his own purposes that what must happen is he must destroy all human life, in fact, all life, in the galaxy. And he begins to do that. Uh, Spoiler alert, he's not not successful. I mean, you know, it's in the title, Guardians of the Galaxy, right? So they guard it. Um, Contrast that to the real God of the universe. The real God of the universe, when our relationship with him is fractured because of our sin and our rebellion, he does not wipe us out. He does not wipe out humanity. Instead, at great sacrifice to himself, he sets out and he accomplishes restoring that relationship, restoring his presence with humanity. And that's what we see in our text today. You have here Exodus chapter 25, for those of you who have been following and are paying attention You'll notice that we've, we've jumped ahead about five chapters in the text. And part of that is uh, getting to chapter 25, uh, the tabernacle. Uh, this, this section is vitally important. 
Um, In the remaining 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, 12 of those chapters have to do with the tabernacle, with the contributions to the tabernacle, setting up the tabernacle, how it's all to be done. So this is an extremely important uh, bit of information, and it also sets up our generosity initiative very well as we begin to think about contributions to the tabernacle um, here in Exodus 25. And we see the purpose for the tabernacle listed in chapter 25, verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The tabernacle is a major part of God's plan to restore his presence to humanity and particularly to his people because what we have happening between chapter 21 and chapter 25 is Moses going up, speaking with God further, getting more uh, commands and laws, the book of the covenant as it's called in chapter 24. He reads it to the people. The people say, all that you say we will do. Moses then takes the blood of sacrifice and splatters it on the people, the blood of the covenant, and they are God's covenant people. And the first action that God does is says, we're going to make a tabernacle so I can dwell in your midst. And you're going to make contribution to see that take place. We find in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 and 35, when God Uh, When the tabernacle is set up, God comes. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God was with his people. He was dwelling with them. In fact, the, uh, the tribes of Israel were encamped around the tabernacle. So literally, God was in the middle of the people of God in the tabernacle. As some of you, I mentioned, I say tabernacle as everybody knows what a tabernacle is. Um, Some students of the Bible, you'll remember what the tabernacle is. It's a tent. It's a movable tent. Uh, It's a, a structure that was set up and essentially tent walls that would go around um, a rectangular shaped area, smaller than a football field. And within it, was another rectangular structure that, were, that was comprised of two parts, the holy place and the holy of holies. And the holy of holies contained the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was not, as Raiders of the Lost Ark would have you to believe, a magical box that would destroy the Nazis. It was, in fact, a place, it was where God's presence on earth was most associated with. And so God was in the midst of the people, and yet God was still separated in large part from the people. They were not able to get within the tabernacle and the holy place, uh, only if you were priests, and within the holy of holies where God's presence was most associated with, the high priest could only go in there once a year, and that with the blood of the sacrifice for his sins and the sins of people. So God was close, he was present, and yet the job was not complete. Now God gives his people a part to play in bringing him, being present with them in the setting up and the contributing to the tabernacle. We read that 
In the passage we read, Exodus 25.1, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution from, for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twin, twined linen goat's hair, tanned ramskins, goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and the breastpiece. And all of these items were items that were necessary either to construct the tabernacle or to uh, promote the ongoing worship in the tabernacle, and the people were to do this. Now, I encourage you to go out and look at our schematics that we have uh, for the, the sanctuary, our rebuilt sanctuary, and our rebuilt uh, Sunday school wing. And uh, th- this week, for the very first time, uh, I spoke um, very briefly with a, an interior designer about our buildings. Well, what we have is we have God here as the architect. And God is the interior designer, and he will be giving instructions to the Israelites in terms of how they are to construct the tabernacle. And he gives them a part to play, an integral part to play in this process. Now, he didn't have to do this. He didn't have to do this even in terms of contributions. I think of uh, Jesus and Peter in the New Testament. The apostle Peter, they're to pay the temple tax. And uh, Jesus says, uh, go fishing, Peter, and you're going to pull up a, um, a red snapper. Uh, some of you went out fishing yesterday, right? Red snapper season. How many of you got a coin when you pulled up a red snapper? Um, anybody? Raise of hands. No, I don't think so. And what Peter, it wasn't a red snapper, but whatever it was that Peter pulled up, there was a coin in the fish's mouth, and they paid the temple tax for that. God could have provided any kinds of ways to do that. And yet, he provided for the people that they would have these items necessary to build the tabernacle. Now, there are two basic types of contributions in the Bible. And the first is a tithe. Okay? Um, and so, we, when we have our time of tithes and offerings, we say, now we're going to receive our tithes and offerings. Those are really... Two different things. A tithe literally means a tenth. A tenth of all you received. And we uh, see this commanded in Leviticus 27. 30, every tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And every tithe of the herds and every tenth animal, all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. And the Levites, who were responsible for the upkeep of the tabernacle and other religious duties, were to receive a tithe, and the children of Israel would give them the tithe, and the Levites themselves were supposed to give a tithe of the tithe. Everybody was supposed to give a tithe. Now, some have said in our day and age, we don't have to give a tithe anymore. That was the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, that no longer applies, and I remember R.C. Sproul in one of my classes talking about tithing, and he said, you know, even if that were the case, when you look at the New Testament and uh, the way that it describes giving, 
um, the upshot of all that is that you would be giving more than a tithe anyway. Um, I still think that the words of Malachi 3 apply to us today. We would do well to remember it. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? And I'm grateful for my parents at an early age instilling in me that, uh, that desire and that practice of tithing. If you're a parent and you give your kids an allowance, uh, do people do allowances anymore? I don't know. Um, um, I don't know what the, what the theory is out there on how you do that. But in any case, uh, help your kids understand that they are to give at least a tenth of that. And so um, my parents had me do that, give a tenth, put a... If I got a dollar, ten cents in the offering plate, or whatever it was at that time. I remember going to college, and um, I was speaking with a friend of mine who is a believer at college, and he was saying to me that he, he doesn't give a tithe in college. He said, when I get out of college and I'm making a lot of money, then I'll be able to give a tithe. He had this uh, aspiration of being an entrepreneur and uh, making a lot of money and being a multimillionaire. And so I said, well, Kevin, um, uh, let's think about this a little bit. So you're going to get out of college, and then you're going to start your own business, right? And he said, yes. And I said, well, it takes a lot of money to start your own business, doesn't it? And he said, yes, absolutely. And I said, and uh, do you plan on getting married? And he said, yes, I do. And I said, well, I suppose you're probably going to need to buy a home. And he said, yes, and homes are expensive. And I said, are you planning on having children? And he said, oh, yes. And I said, well, children are really expensive. And I, and I suppose you're going to want to save for their college education. Yeah, I suppose so. Well, that's very expensive. And, you know, you need to get around to thinking about your retirement. Are you going to be saving for your retirement? And he said, yes. And I said, so when is it going to be a convenient time to give? And he said, I see your point. There's really no convenient time, right? It's... Trusting the Lord. He gives to us, we give back to him a portion. Now the other type of contribution is the type we see in our text today, and that is a free will offering. God did not say to the Israelites, when you build the sanctuary, that you're to give a prescribed amount for the rebuilding of the sanctuary. He said it is a free will offering from the heart over and above the tithe. We see this aspect of whatever type of giving we do in 2 Corinthians 9-7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the Bible says it is blessed, more blessed to give than receive. And so as we think about the rebuilding of our sanctuary, we need to think in terms of free will offering, uh, having a heart. Uh, that God wells up in us uh, to provide for that. The tabernacle, the tabernacle is a type of a heavenly dwelling place. Okay, it's a picture of the heavenly dwelling place of God. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. And of all its furniture, so you shall make it. The book of Hebrews speaks of this 
tabernacle and the reason why God went into such detail to give them the schematics of the tabernacle, the furnishings of the tabernacle, and the various ways that the tabernacle should be appointed for worship. It was a picture of a heavenly tabernacle. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 says this of Jesus and his ministry in the tabernacle. Now the point in what we are saying is this, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, and a minister in the holy places, there's that terminology of the tabernacle, in the true tent that the Lord set up. That word tent in the Greek is skene, just means tent, speaking of the tabernacle. It is the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And this is where he references the tabernacle. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the skene, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1 goes on to say, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent, that is the tabernacle, was prepared. The first section in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that we have that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So Jesus Christ entered into a heavenly tabernacle, a heavenly holy place, and offered the sacrifice of himself as the high priest had done on earth. He was the fulfillment of that. Jesus has brought us to a heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly place of the presence of God. John chapter 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is the verb form for tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 9.12, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify them for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead, dead works to serve the living God. You understand that that tabernacle that we read here in Exodus chapter 25 was a representation built a replica built of the tabernacle in heaven of which Jesus Christ was the fulfillment and he entered into the most holy place offering the sacrifice of himself once and for all 
that we might be forgiven of our sins. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. To unravel what Adam and Eve began and what all of us have done from our rebellion. That we might no longer be estranged, but be part of the people of God and experience the presence of God. And we experience God's tabernacling among us in a way that ancient Israel did not experience. In a more intimate and in close way through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament, but the Holy Spirit has come in greater fullness after the ministry of Jesus Christ. John 14, 16, we hear the words of Jesus And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then 1 Corinthians 6.19 speaks of this reality. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The you there is plural. The word body is singular. In other words, this is in reference to the church, the people of God. So yes, individually, the Spirit of God is near and even in you. The presence of God is close in a a way and in a fullness that he was not before the ministry of Jesus Christ. And yet, as the people of God gather together, we, as the people of God, are the temple of God, the place of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. Now, when we rebuild our sanctuary... And we hold our first uh, dedication Sunday service there. I can pretty much guarantee that the cloud of Shekinah glory of God is not going to come into the sanctuary such that we have to leave like Moses did, right? We, as the people, are the temple, the tabernacle. And God indwells in us as a people as we gather together. So why is it that we build a building? Uh, We build a building so that people might be able to come into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in him. And that they might know what it means to have a taste of heaven. That tabernacle brought to us right now and for all eternity. Know it in completion and in fullness. And so it's a platform for ministry. It's a platform for worship as we come together and worship God as his tabernacle, as his temple, as his people. But it's also a platform for ministry, for us to be able to reach out to our children and to our family and to our friends and to those that need to know Jesus Christ in Panama City and Bay County and around the world. And we've spent time and energy and effort and prayer thinking about what is the best possible use of our, uh, of our means that we have at our disposal to be a people that have a place where we can gather 
And so that's why we've moved forward in order to do that. It's not about brick and mortar. It's about the ability to be a platform for God to be at work in us and through us that we might see other people come to know the presence of God. And we taste it even now. Uh, We taste it. You know, what is paradise to you? Um, I think of Eddie Money, uh, a song many years ago, Two Tickets to Paradise, has a particular carnal meaning uh, to what it means, what paradise means. Um, I had a conversation with some uh, friends of ours who were in town. They're Japanese missionaries talking about what is the ultimate in Japanese culture. You know, what is it that drives it? What is it that people look for? They look for order. And they are very willing for you to say exactly what they need to do. Just tell me what I need to do so that we can have order in our society. That's a taste of heaven is an orderly society. Not so much for America. You know, we want to be, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps um, and, uh, you know, accomplish our own thing. We did it my way. Uh, things could be really sloppy and really messy. Um, I, can't, I can't tell you how many times turned on the television I've heard, uh, this is my dream. I want to accomplish my dream. I've accomplished my dream. And uh, I've sacrificed... My kids, I've sacrificed my parents, I've sacrificed my family, I've sacrificed my friends, but that's okay because they understand the ultimate is accomplishing my dream. That is what many people in our culture think of as the ultimate. What is the ultimate? What is a taste of heaven? A taste of heaven is having peace with God. It's having the presence of God in your life. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me be explicit here. So who has peace with God? Those who have faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that sacrifice he made on the cross, and understanding that you are alienated from God, that you need a Savior, and you simply trust in the gift that he provides for you because you're needy. You need a Savior, and you trust in Christ as your sacrifice. And we're restored in relationship with God. Our problem, our alienation, our sin is atoned for. Now, I'm not saying that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that your entire life is one big experience of paradise. What I'm saying is that in the midst of our difficulties and troubles and trials, we can experience a taste of heaven. Somebody uh, who lives here in the area wrote, this is uh, two weeks after the hurricane last year. She writes, at first the devastation was overwhelming, but having ridden out the storm and survived, learning that all our family in the area were safe, and that though broken, our home was still standing, everything else faded into insignificance. Psalm 34:18 says, "The Lord is close to the broken-hearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed." We are all suffering from broken hearts, and in some days, and some days our spirits do feel crushed. But we have also witnessed God's presence countless times over the past few weeks. She gives examples of God's work in her life and in our lives. 
the linemen who arrived within hours of the storm to help restore power, the countless volunteers who arrived with much-needed supplies and hope, neighbors helping neighbors, family reaching out to help each other and the community. In these, we have seen God at work. We are a resilient people, and with God's ever-present strength and grace, we will overcome, rebuild our homes and lives and our communities. We will emerge from this experience stronger, but also more humble and grateful for having made it through. Thank you, God, for seeing us through the storm and for blessing us daily with hope and renewed strength. And so we know we go through many difficulties. We go through many trials, both then, a year ago, and now. And uh, by saying that we taste heaven, a bit of heaven, we're not saying that all of our troubles go away. Nevertheless, it's real. We experience it. Sometimes it's a matter of faith. Lord, I believe. I don't feel it right now, but I believe you are present with me. In other times, though, we actually taste it and we sense the presence of God. And one of the things I struggle with is sleep. There'll be times when I'll be up at night thinking about this or that and praying. And uh, often what will put me back to sleep is I'll start praying the Lord's Prayer. And it goes something like this for me. My Father, thank you that you love me so much that you sent Jesus uh, and sacrificed him uh, for me. That's amazing. Uh, my Father in heaven, you are uh, the almighty God, and you, almighty God, love me that much. And oftentimes that's what God uses to give me a sense of his presence and put me back to sleep. Um, and so whether it's in the middle of the night, whether it's during the day, There are times when we as believers in Christ who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us sense that God is present with us and we taste heaven. And one day we'll experience it in perfection. God with us, restoring the fellowship that Adam and Eve lost. We look forward to that time when Christ returns. And we read of this in the passage that we first read in our Um, in our worship service today, Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. What is the dwelling place of God? It is the skene. It is the tent. It's the same word for tabernacle. Behold, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And we look forward to that day when the former things pass away and we don't experience Death and decay and sickness and difficulty and tears. And yet, primarily, what that tabernacle coming down, God coming down from heaven and being with us is, more than anything else, is God present with us and we experiencing that for all eternity. And that's why we're going about building a sanctuary, rebuilding a sanctuary rebuilding a space so that others might come to know and experience and have a taste of it now 
and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, experience the presence of God for all eternity. And so therefore, we contribute, we sacrifice our time and our talent and our treasure to see this take place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you did not abandon humanity, but that in your plan, a plan uh, that was both for our good and your glory, that you sacrificed your son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice so that the Holy of Holies may be entered by Christ on our behalf and that we may know what it means to have you dwelling within us and that one day we look forward to the time when the tabernacle will come down and what took place in Eden will be completely undone and will be even better than it was before. We thank you. Uh, We pray that you would raise up in us encouragement Uh, that we might know and believe and trust in you and that we might experience your presence more and more. And we pray this in Jesus' name.